If you're one of the four or five people in the world who think we don't talk enough about rice, well, hold on to your butts, because today is your day on this episode of Delicious History. When we think of food in general, what might be the first thing to come to someone's mind? Well, perhaps their favorite food, like pizza or burgers. But we might also just think about general food, like bread. Or, for a large portion of the world, rice. Rice is one of those incredible foods because it's so simple, and yet many people who eat it can't imagine life without it. Full disclosure, I'm Italian, well, half Italian, and we consume a lot of wheat. But we eat it in different forms, like breads and pastas. What I find fascinating about people who eat rice is that they often can't imagine a meal without a pile of just white rice on their plate. (laughs) I mean, we certainly associate rice with Asian cultures for sure, but rice is also a major staple crop across Africa and Latin America. One of my favorite experiences with rice uh, was eating Chinese food in South America. Down there they call it chifa. And it didn't matter what you ordered, even if it was a giant pile of noodles, It had to be on a pile of rice for it to be a complete meal. Otherwise, it was just like a snack. All right, now let's do a little exercise. Don't worry, nothing physical, just mental. When you think about rice, what's the first thing that probably comes to your mind? Maybe the color white. In fact, in English, we have the expression like white on rice, meaning that somebody's very involved with something or very close to something. But in reality, rice is no more white than you are red. Nobody's actually red, despite what some football team from Washington might think. Shots fired from a Buffalo Bills fan. Just like if you took the skin off a person, we would all be red. The only way you can get white rice is by stripping it of its natural outer coating. For the vast majority of history, people have eaten what we would now consider to be brown rice. But for them, it was just rice. Much like with other grains, rice has three parts to it. The fibrous bran, the germ, which is the reproductive organ of the seed itself, and the inner polished grain known as the endosperm. Of course, there's the husk as well, but that's not really edible and has to be taken off regardless of how you eat the rice. Rice has been a staple crop for so long because of how incredibly nutritious it is, especially when sprouted, which is when you soak it in water and allow the grain to start to germinate before you cook it. But even if you just are eating your garden variety brown rice, it contains not just carbohydrates, but a significant amount of protein, vitamins, and minerals. While rice has been seen as a luxury item in the West for millennia until large-scale production started in the Americas, it's really been a food of the people in large portions of the East. White rice is something that's been around for a while, but was only really seen as a food for the upper class until relatively recently because of how costly it was to polish the grain by hand. However, industrial rice polishers really started to make white rice accessible to larger groups of people. The first known rice polisher was created by Samson Moore in 1861, and the idea and technology soon spread throughout the world, but particularly in the East. This industrialization of the process made it so that those in the upper and now somewhat middle classes could afford white rice, but it was still very much seen as a status symbol because the poor, particularly the poor in the countryside, still could not really afford it and were forced to eat plain old brown rice. 
Now, besides the class structure issue and taste, white rice really does have benefits over brown rice in the modern world. See, brown rice has a wide variety of nutrients, including fats. Not a lot of fat, but a significant amount. The problem with storing anything with fats is that those fats can go rancid. You can see an example of this if you ever smell maybe an old bottle of olive oil you find in the back of the pantry, or if you waited too long to eat those walnuts that you'd stored for that banana bread that you're totally going to make. Rancid fat has an acrid, bitter taste to it. That's a sure sign that the fat itself has denatured. Since brown rice has a small but significant amount of fat, it doesn't really store for very long and does not keep in warmer climates. Having white rice allows you to not only store it well over a year if needed, but allows you to bring that rice to pretty much any type of climate around the world and still have a usable foodstuff. This was especially important in the end of the 19th century because of one country in particular that loved their rice and also happened to be expanding into different climates and needed to have a type of food to feed its soldiers that would keep for long periods of time. Japan. During this time, the Japanese really started to expand their empire both on land as well as at sea. Something that's quite interesting when talking about the relationship between white rice and the Japanese empire is that the formal beginning of the Japanese empire is set at the year 1868, just seven years after rice polishing became industrialized. Food logistics is a huge part of any military and has been one of the most important factors in whether or not an empire expands or falls. The beginning of the Imperial Age, also known as the Meiji era, began with the signing of the Charter Oath of Imperial Meiji, when he was installed on April 7, 1868. Essentially, this meant a promise to his people that he would make Japan a force to be reckoned with. This included reforms to the political and judicial system, industrialization, militarization, as well as westernization of the nation. He sent Japanese students and experts abroad to study and understand what parts were the most successful of the West, as well as hiring Western consultants to help with reforms at home. And while no one could deny the massive growth and successes that these reforms were causing, there seemed to be something creeping out of the darkness that was now starting to affect the Japanese people overall, and especially the military. It was a disease known as kake. Many of the common symptoms included inflammation of the legs and extremities, paralysis, racing hearts, difficulty speaking, discoloration of the tongue, vomiting, and eventually possibly death. At first, people thought it was some sort of infection, but it didn't seem to follow any sort of pattern and it didn't seem to leap from person to person. While these symptoms are bad in general, it's especially worse when it affects the military, which it did greatly. But at this point, nobody really knew what caused it. They only understood that there were certain factors that contributed to it. Now let's get into a few of those and see if we can solve this mystery. Right off the bat, this disease was a lot more common in the cities than it was in the countryside. In fact, it was commonly known as Edo sickness, as Edo was the name that would be used for the city that would eventually be known as Tokyo. Also, it was extremely prevalent within the military and especially in the Navy affecting one out of every three people, and with a death rate of about 2-3% to overall. It seemed to affect all classes of people, with Emperor Meiji himself being affected occasionally. In fact, he even lost some ants to the disease. He knew that curing this disease was absolutely necessary, and viewed it as one of the top priorities of the military. 
In fact, kake was named a national disease and something that needed to be taken care of ASAP. Of course, news of this disease was very much a state secret. The last thing the government wanted was for their enemies to know how bad a shape they were and how easily it may have been to overwhelm their weakened forces. Now enters the hero of our story, Dr. Takaki Kanehiro. Takaki was born to a family of comfortable but certainly not wealthy means. As a youth, he studied traditional Chinese medicine, but wanted to also expand his repertoire and to understand Western medicine. To do so, he entered the Japanese Imperial Navy in 1872 as a medical officer and was sent to study medicine under Dr. William Willis. One of the main reasons why Takaki wanted to understand Western medicine so well was because something he noticed. He noticed that while Edo sickness was something that was devastating his own military, it was almost unheard of with Westerners. During his time in the Navy, he was very concerned with making sure to take very detailed notes so that he could understand the disease. He noticed that at any given time, about one quarter of his comrades were sick from Edo sickness, but he still couldn't understand why. In 1875, he was sent to Britain to study medicine, and he did for five years before returning back to Japan and becoming the head of the Tokyo Naval Hospital. Unfortunately, things had only gotten worse in the time he'd been gone, and now a full third of the military was sick at any given time. Takaki happened to be in Britain at a perfect time for him to be in a position to help the Japanese military. See, he was there when doctors were trying to figure out what could possibly be a cure for scurvy in British sailors. So they were trying all kinds of different foods until they found out that eating citrus appeared to cure the disease. So Takaki figured, why don't we start experimenting with foods to see what might be the issue? Unfortunately, the medical establishment in Japan were still under the impression that this was caused by some sort of infectious agent and absolutely rejected the idea that it could be caused by diet. Still, he was nothing if not persistent. He eventually got the approval to do testing and noticed that the diet of the average sailor in the Japanese Navy had only half of the nitrogenous elements of those sailors of other countries. This was the beginning of food science, so the idea of protein wasn't around yet. So what he was really saying was that they weren't getting enough protein in their diet since protein happens to have large amounts of nitrogen compared to other foods. So he said, well, let's start putting more nitrogenous elements in their diets. This is where he started to run into a wall, not just with the established scientific community, but now with the military itself. Remember how we said white rice was really something that was starting to become a status symbol? Well, one of the best parts of being in the military in those days was that you could have all the white rice you wanted which the soldiers and sailors thought was pretty, pretty good. Anything else they ate typically had to be purchased on their own dime. So considering the fact that a lot of these people came into the military from poor families, it's easy to understand why such a large percentage of their diet came from free, status-boosting white rice. Since the soldiers and sailors didn't want to change their diet, and the military didn't want to spend all that extra money to provide them with a more varied diet, Takaki again was forced to sit in the corner and wait for another opportunity for a win, just like me at my high school prom. But finally, that day came. Unfortunately, it really wasn't a happy day for anyone except for Takaki. But sometimes we'll take any success we can get, just like me at my high school prom. A training ship went out on a short mission with about 370 sailors. When they returned, half the crew was sick and 25 had died. This was the chance that Takaki was waiting for, since he knew that the military was now desperate for a solution. 
On the next ship that was sent out on that same training mission, Takaki was allowed to not only accompany the ship, but also to control the diet of all the sailors on board. In addition to the white rice, he made sure that there was enough high-protein foods to be eaten. Of the 333 sailors that went out on that mission, there were no deaths, and only 14 people got sick. But that was because they didn't respect his advice, and decided to keep eating white rice, apparently. You heard it here first, folks. Takaki Kanehiro was the Japanese Rodney Dangerfield. Not only was this great news for the military, but for Takaki himself, because he was so invested in the success of his theory that he was actually planning to commit ritual suicide if it didn't work out, since he assured the emperor directly that it would work. So that's good. After all this, I have some bad news for you. Takaki was actually wrong. You see, what Edo sickness actually was, was beriberi, a disease caused by a lack of thiamine, or vitamin B1. The reason that so many people were getting sick was because by stripping the rice of the brand and germ, all of the thiamine that they were consuming before in brown rice was absent from their diet. Adding more protein to the sailor's diet was kind of a lucky chance because of the fact that high-protein foods typically contain significant amounts of thiamine as well. Since the military probably couldn't afford the cost and logistics of having fresh meat aboard all their ships, Takaki recommended mixing barley with the white rice since it had more protein. And again, he got lucky because barley just happens to contain a lot of thiamine, so it worked out for everybody. And worked out it did, since in just one year, deaths from Edo sickness in the Navy went to zero, and total sickness went down by 94%. So, end of the story, right? Everyone just rides off into the sunset. Well, if you can believe it, people still didn't believe Takaki. The army in particular was very much against the idea of adding barley or any other type of protein to the soldier's diet, and they paid the price. In 1895, the First Sino-Japanese War ended with huge losses on the part of the Japanese army, not just from the Chinese soldiers, but from their own stubbornness. At some points during the war, up to 90% of all Japanese soldiers were sick from Edo sickness, with 73,000 being hospitalized and 4,000 dying. To put that in perspective, only about 1,300 soldiers died on the Japanese side due to actual fighting. These losses were completely avoidable had the army just looked at the evidence. Even though Japan won the war and were given control of Taiwan, Penghu, and the Liaodong Peninsula, the losses were still much higher than they had to be. Also, Japan soon realized that now that they were entering the realm of empire, they had a target on their back from other expanding empires and needed a stronger military now more than ever. Case in point, the Russo-Japanese War just 10 years later ended up having massive losses for the Japanese, both being killed in action as well as from Edo sickness. At this point, 27,000 Japanese soldiers died from the disease and over 250,000 were hospitalized. And believe it or not, those numbers were only for about a year, since halfway through the war, the Japanese army switched to putting barley in the rice, and Edo sickness almost completely vanished overnight. Once the army finally gave in, then the people of Japan as a whole accepted the advice, and Edo sickness became a thing of the past. Takaki was even named the Barley Baron. Interestingly, because of all the lives he potentially saved, he is the only Japanese person to have a peninsula named after him in Antarctica. Unfortunately, what happened afterwards was arguably not great for anyone except for Japan. 
We know that the Japanese Empire quickly began to spread at that point, and while many of us are aware of the role Japan played in World War II, the people of Manchuria, Korea, and other parts of the Pacific can tell you that that quick rise of the Japanese Empire was not necessarily a positive thing in their life. The good news is that that's all far behind us, and not only is this particular disease exceedingly rare in the developed world now, but our understanding of nutrition as a whole really began around that time. We understand that certain foods have certain nutritional values that can help us, and that we need to include more in our diet. Even though in the short term a lot of people suffered as a result of Takaki's work, we're all better off today because of it. Also, there's no reason to be angry at the Japanese anymore. If my grandpa who fought in the Pacific Theater was able to let bygones be bygones and slowly let that bias disappear, so can we all. So in conclusion, I guess we can all agree that the real hero of this episode was my grandpa Fred. I want to thank Limphamy for his inspiration for this episode. For those who don't know, Limphamy is an artist who deals a lot with Japanese history and likes to make history interesting by using humor. Be sure to check out his YouTube and Instagram pages. I love this story, but quite honestly, a lot of the information was pretty sparse to find, so he was a great source of information there. I also want to thank all of you uh, for your support. This is only the second episode of, of this show. I love doing this. Um, it's a passion of mine, food and, and history, and combining them together is like a, a dream come true. Um, I did not expect nearly the amount of support I would get for the first episode, and so moving forward, I hope... We can just keep that momentum. Let your friends know about this show. If you find value in the show, please continue listening and get the word out there. Until next time, remember that we all make our own history. So make yours delicious.